We're doing a series in Lent where we're looking at some key and strategic events in Jesus' ministry and life, and we're looking at some of his key teachings. Uh, we come today to John chapter 9, and we're looking at one of the stories of healing that Jesus did. Um, it's a particularly interesting story because it actually goes at the issue of the cause or the problem of suffering and Jesus' response to suffering and how Jesus looked at suffering. And so we get to see really clearly what Jesus wants us to understand about both the losses, the pain, the suffering in our own life, the problem of pain in a sense. So let's read God's word together. I like it when you read out loud with me. Uh, I just think it's good for us as a congregation to read God's word together. And so let's read it out loud together. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not, is not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. <laughs> this story of, of the healing of a man born blind is prefaced or, or is, is set in the context of the question, why is he blind? Did his parents sin? Did he sin? Now, the, the lesson in many ways here is really, is really a teaching and a lesson for those of us who really love Jesus. It's not necessarily a teaching that the whole world's going to understand. But it is a teaching for someone who says, I really want to follow you, Jesus. I really want to know you. I want to love you all my days. I want to trust you all my days. And so the, the end goal of this teaching is not only how will you handle your suffering, but what will you be for others in the midst of their suffering? Jesus has an interesting phrase that he says here, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So therefore, in some way, he's saying, then you become the light of the world. So how you handle your suffering and how you handle other people's suffering then becomes everything for others to see the light of the Lord Jesus in you. So that we as Christ's followers, we don't get elated or excited when suffering happens. 
Nor do we become overwhelmed or overcome by suffering when suffering happens. We get this sense of a quiet power. That when we are suffering, when others are suffering, we have a source of power that sustains us, that maintains us, that allows us even to handle the most unexpected circumstances. That there is, because we have experienced the abiding presence of God, we become an abiding presence in the, in the face of suffering in others. We have a, a conscious, not, not an unconscious, but a, a conscious reflexiveness about even the words that we say when other people are suffering. One of the great passages of Scripture is Romans 8.28. In all things, we know that God works together for good. But when you say that in a trite way or in a superficial way, when someone else is suffering, then you are no longer the light of the world. You are salt in the wound. You're basically telling them what so many others will tell them. If you had enough faith, if you're smart enough, if you were strong enough, if you were mature enough, this wouldn't bother you so much as it does. So instead of being a light and a comfort, instead of being a quiet power, many of us have experienced the counsel of others that make us want to never be counseled again. And many of us have counseled others in ways that we ourselves would not want to be counseled. And so this passage of Scripture is important, not only for the fact that it demonstrates the messianic power of Jesus to turn blind eyes into sight, but also to speak to us about how God actually works in the midst of our suffering. You know, you can't live in this life, you can't live in ministry and not encounter sad stories. I was thinking back over the last 13 years of ministry here, and I've, I've seen teenagers die from sicknesses that we prayed, that we fasted, that we sought the Lord in every way, and we fought together to see them overcome. I've seen families go through the, the, the terrible, unexpected loss of an overdose of their kids after they had gotten clean. I've seen, you know, the natural consequences that life comes to an end even for great people this past week and and even in these past months we've had a number of funerals and every single funeral always affects me in a pretty deep way but especially this last couple couple of weeks uh, one of the the real great men of God of this church passed away Jose Quinones and he was just one of the most wonderful uh, godly men that I've ever met in my life. And he was, for me, one of my very first cheerleaders at this church. I remember when I first came here, I, I so much wanted to see the Holy Spirit move in worship. I wanted to see people be able to shout and, and lift their hands and glorify God in worship. And I wanted to see an attitude and atmosphere of prayer in the worship services. And I remember one of the things that opened the door for the Spirit to come in a powerful way was the way that Jose used to take up the offering. You wouldn't expect the offering to be a moment of Pentecostal power, but he would, he would take up the offering 
And as he's taken up the offering, the Spirit of the Lord would fall on him. He began to pray in tongues in Spanish and English and any other language that came out as he was doing it. And it was just awesome. And we all knew whether we understood what he was saying or not. We knew the presence of the Lord was upon the offering. And it would open up the whole service. And people would realize this is a place for the Spirit. This is a place for the presence of the Lord. And though... He lived such a full life and, and was so dearly loved by family and friends. Death still is an enemy. It is not the circle of life. It is not Lion King theology. It is an enemy. And every time we see it, we realize that we are still groaning and still longing for the Lord to come and make things right. So it's easy for us as we go through either ultimate type suffering or temporary suffering, it's easy for us to say, why do you let that happen, God? Why do you allow it? Why do you not stop it? You have the power to prevent it. Why do you not do so? Well, there's, there's sort of two coping mechanisms that all of us gravitate towards one time or another in our lives. And... Uh, Someone was sharing this the other day that there's, there's, you know, there's graffiti in New York City and the boroughs all over. And there was this one really um, big one that said, life is hard and then you die. And uh, a pastor was speaking on this and he said, you know that you're a grown-up when that no longer affects you. You know, and maybe, maybe the graffiti was, life sucks, and then you die. And you, you look at that, and you go, yeah, that's right. Because there's something in most of us that eventually we allow cynicism to be our adult world. We get cynical. We say, you know, I hope for the best, but I expect the worst. And we get to where we no longer have really an expectancy of anything turning out really well. But usually the reason we get to cynicism is that we started with romanticism. Every single one of us, for some reason, in, in our heart of hearts, believe that life should turn out like a Disney movie. But the problem is, in our movie, the beast never becomes anything but the beast. And whether you're married to the beast or you are the beast. <laughs> eventually you become cynical that he's, he or she are ever going to change. And it doesn't matter how many rose petals fall to the ground. <laughs> now all you can see on the rose is the thorn anyway. Come on. You have to understand that most of us do not realize that our worldviews have been and continue to be evolving according to our pain, according to our disappointments, according to what did not happen that we expected to happen, the things that we thought and invested in that didn't turn out the way we thought they should. And here's the thing is you do not have a limitless capacity for passion. You have a limited capacity for passion. And so if you give yourself over to things that take up a lot of space in your soul, such as 
protective devices, cynicism, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, anxiety, depression, self-pity. If you give yourself over to those things, they take up all the space. So that even when the Holy Spirit begins to pour out the goodness of the Lord, you no longer have space for it. Though you might feel it for a moment, it spills out and you're back to living in that cynical, skeptical, self-protective way. See, Jesus, when they asked him, why is this man blind? And the disciples said, who sinned? Did he sin? See, that's a very skeptical answer. Did his parents sin? Very skeptical answer. They're saying, in their, their minds, there's a cause for this blindness. There's a superficial answer. If we can pinpoint who sinned, then we can blame them. Well, and Jesus says, neither. So what he's saying is there's two in this question, there are two false understandings of suffering. And there may be much, many more than two, but here are the two that Jesus presents and that the Gospel of John presents. And the two are anger and guilt. Now, this is, this is a fairly interesting thing in humans. Have you, ever, have you ever felt, and you don't have to hold up your hand, we can see it. Uh, you've ever felt spite. You ever heard that saying, you know, you cut your nose off to spite your own face? Yeah. Well, spite is, defi is defined as so wanting to hurt someone else that you will hurt yourself. Most of us, when it comes to revenge, when it comes to getting even, when it comes to settling the score, spite is what arises, not justice. So I was listening to a radio program yesterday, and they were, they were, they were studying spite. And uh, one of the leaders in the field of biology said that they have never, ever observed spite in any animals. There are many animals that are meaner than humans, he said, but not a one of them will ever do anything that is not to their advantage, whether it's food or shelter or whatever it might be. They will never hurt themselves to hurt another. Only humans will do that. <laughs> you understand we are broken people. That we could even fathom doing something like that is not instinct. It's sin. And it's sinfulness. And so what Jesus portrays here, what is portrayed by the, by the writer John here is that when we look at suffering, we look at it from a distorted worldview. And the distortion usually goes this way. Okay, They said, was it his parents' fault? So let's, let's basically, I'm suffering, he's suffering, let's figure out who's to blame. Now don't say this isn't happening today. This, this is as modern as can be. As soon as uh, you, know, you and I start getting in touch and we start talking about Here's my foibles, here's my eccentricities, here's my, you know, here's my addictions. Immediately go, you know, I wasn't really loved as a child. You know, I wasn't breastfed. You know, I wasn't, you know, no, no one changed my diapers. You know, I was left in my own whatever, you know. And, and all of a sudden, it's not me. It's not my choice. 
I have no choice. They're to blame. Really easy. I'm suffering because of deprivation of the past. Listen, the problem with that is, is kind of simple to look at, and that is you get stuck. You get stuck. You can go home and blame them all day, but nothing's going to give you a time machine and go back and undo it. So you could, you could get this up, and you could be yelling at your parents for the rest of your life, and you'll be just as immature every single day. You will be suffering even more. You will compound your suffering by your anger. Have you ever noticed that really and truly the people who have hurt you, your anger never reaches them? It's only the people who love you who get spewed the anger on. The innocent usually suffer from your anger. And then the guilt trap. Are you tracking with me so far? Then the guilt trap is really is getting to the place where, well, he must be blind because it's his fault. Now, I have no idea how many of you default to this setting. I do not. It's always your fault. Now, I might be alone in that, but I don't really suffer with guilt a lot. Drives my wife crazy because she can't guilt me into much. You know, but there are some of you in this room that immediately you just go, what did I do? What did I do? Didn't I pray enough? Didn't I read my Bible? Did I witness this week? I need to listen to more K-Love. <laughs> I'm not going to say what that does to you. I like K-Love. It's all right. Sometimes. See, neither of these work. There is nothing more debilitating than guilt. It, it, it makes you feel sorry for yourself. It makes you feel like it's never going to change. And it's never going to get any better. And there is no way, friends, see, guilt never stays guilt. It always goes to shame. Guilt is basically, at a good level, on a positive level, guilt reminds you and reveals to you what's wrong, what you've done wrong, so that you can change. But guilt never stays there because it, it, when, it, when you look at what you've done wrong, it's so easy to start saying, something's wrong with me, which goes to shame. Shame is about what's wrong with me. And if you get into shame, shame is always fear-based. And fear always makes you hide. And if you're hiding, then you're not ever able to feel love because nobody knows you. And nobody can reach you. So you can have your shield of shame. But then no one will ever know the real you. And so you will know and your heart will know that you're not loved because you're not known. <laughs> I know this is somewhat deep. Can you stay with me on this? You see, it is impossible to be loved without being known. People in New York, it's fascinating, you know... I've been here 13 years. I, I'm, I'm becoming more of one, except they still don't think my accent's good enough. But one of the things that's true here is people want to be understood, but they don't want to be known. You cannot be understood if you're not, on, if you're not known. And you cannot feel love if someone doesn't understand you. So when you have a shield of shame, no one ever knows you. And therefore, they might love who they think you are, but they don't know who you are. Are you tr can you track with me on this? 
This could save you some counseling, I think. <laughs> well, the problem with both these tracks is that they can, can be combined. And one of the ways that people combine is they feel guilt, so they feel angry with themselves. And they feel angry and they want some to bl someone to blame. And so most people ultimately, where the guilt and the anger begin to merge is they begin to blame God. Because ultimately they go, he could have prevented this. He could have made my childhood better. He could have given me safety. He could have given me wealth. Or he could have given me you know, more opportunities. And eventually, every single person with some form of logic on the anger and guilt track will always end up pointing at God. Now, when these two are combined, it's really, really lethal. What we see in our current culture is actually an expression of the two questions that the disciples asked. There's a, a false ideology that many people in our society and their superficiality will say, look at me, I'm successful, I work hard, if you would just work just as hard as me, if you weren't lazy, if you weren't, you know, if you were willing to sacrifice and pull yourself up by the bootstraps, then you could be happy and successful just like me. And then there, you, you look at the other side of the aisle, and you have people that have said, you're such victims. Everybody's a victim. And if anybody else is successful, it's because they've taken it from you. See, they're being rich. They're being happy means you can't be rich. And you can't be happy. Now, if you don't see that in our society, you're not looking. It's both the anger track and the guilt track. And it comes together to divide us and to give us superficial answers to complex questions. Jesus says neither track is correct. He says it's not that simplistic. Now, let, let me just throw one more thing, one more element out here. We as believers, as Bible people, we believe there's a supernatural element to evil. We believe that there is a personal enemy. In the Bible, he's called Satan. He's the accuser. He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. He's the devil himself. And so, in many ways, modern people, by dismissing the supernatural, have actually become simplistic and naive. Notice, when there's a serial killer, what do they immediately do? They investigate his childhood. It's almost as if we can't define evil today without saying there are mitigating circumstances. Instead of realizing there's evil and there's an enemy. And that enemy hates God and because you love God, he hates you. And he has strategies. And though one of his strategies is to accuse you, where do you think the shame comes from? Even your coping mechanism, he put in place. Because every coping mechanism that you have is a lie. And he's the father of lies. But really, what he's trying to do is accuse God to you. So that when you suffer, he believes you have a price. He believes you have a price at which you will stop trusting God. Because he does not believe, friends, that there's a one of us in this room that loves God for God. 
He really, really believes that you only love God as long as God makes you comfortable. And he is trying to find the price, whether it's a relationship, whether it's your health, whether it's your riches, your career, whatever it is, he's trying to find the price that he can extract from you to make you get to the place where you curse God for your bad situation. See, what Jesus is doing here, and it, it's so interesting because at the heart of everything Jesus is doing is he's always going behind the questions. See, they think their questions are brilliant. Who sinned? They're being very spiritual at this moment. Who sinned? The mom, the dad, or the man himself? And Jesus looks at him and said, and this is there in Hebrew somewhere, you know, it's in the, the subscript of the Greek there. He says, these are stupid questions. <laughs> because he doesn't answer them. Neither. Right? I mean, a neither means that was not a good question. So what's he doing? Well, what he's doing is he's forcing his disciples, and he's going to force you to... Look at your unexamined beliefs that prompt those questions. Your presuppositions, your assumptions, your, your premises, the things that you believe you think are true. You see, every question that ever comes out of your mouth is coming from a belief. It's coming from a worldview. It's coming from the way you look at reality. And the problem is that in your pain, in your suffering, and other people's suffering, it has warped your view. There is a reason why this story is about a blind man. It's because all of us are spiritually blind. It's so clear he's physically blind, but it wasn't so clear that the disciples were spiritually blind. And yet Jesus shows them their blindness. See, in a way... What Jesus is uncovering here is that when you ask, why does this happen to me? Why does this happen? Why do you not prevent this? It's basically you're manifesting the assumption that God owes you something. You owe me. You owe me a comfortable life. You owe me a success. You owe me health. You owe me. When I say why, I'm saying something has happened that is not in accordance with the way I look at things. And so, God, you must answer to me. And Jesus says, your assumption is totally wrong. Well, think about it with me. <laughs> you may want to leave right now, but because uh, it's going to get worse. Think about this. You and I, we have a God who created us. He sustains us. And every breath you're taking is because of the omnipresence of God. God is present in an omnipresent way, everywhere, every breath. He's oxygen. He sustains you. He cares for you all the time. What he asks of you or calls you to is therefore to love him because of who he is, to serve him because of who he is, and even to joyfully obey him because of who he is. But yet, every single day of your life, my life, I've thwarted, you've thwarted his loving authority, his interventions in our life, and we assume, even though we've thwarted him, that he owes us. 
The relationship, therefore, of sin to suffering is actually rather complex because if it were direct, none of us would be here. Let me explain what I mean by that. All suffering does come from sin in general. There was no suffering in the garden until there was disobedience. All suffering entered into the, into the reality of the world through the disobedience of the first man. Now, it's kind of fascinating when you think about our place in the universe. David Chaka was talking about this last week. It is an amazing thing when you think about how God did not place us in a factory. He placed us in a garden. And while God himself is the creator of a garden, and God himself filled the garden, a garden is never complete. It always has seed time and harvest. A garden has to be tended. It has to be cultivated. It has to be gathered. And then you start all over again, and you do it again. God deeded this earth to us as a garden. We're, our position is under God, but over nature. Have you ever realized that? Even though your whole life you might have felt like you've lived under the pile, you're actually above. You're made little lower than the angels. And when Jesus comes back to glorify us, when he comes back to take us home, he will lift us above the angels. T.S. Lewis, I don't know if this helps you, but in, in my mind, I sometimes have to think of who I will be instead of just who I am. What C.S. Lewis says, if you could see yourself now as you will be in glory, which is the promise of God. If you see yourself as you will be in glory, he said, you would fall down and worship yourself right now. Some of you do that already, but you shouldn't. And why shouldn't you? Well, because we're still living under the curse that took place in Genesis 3 in the rebellion. And God spoke over this nature to whom, you know, that we had been deeded. He spoke over it and he said, this, this thing's never going to work right again until he returns. Even that powerful verse that we use in Romans 8.28 is preceded by prayer. It says, you do not know how to pray as you ought. So somehow, us learning to pray as we ought is connected to God working all things together for good. In other words, the garden is a collaborative effort. You are still called to exhibit rulership, reign in the kingdom way over the garden, to return the garden to its glory, to pray into existence the things that God, the head gardener, wants. You have a role. You have a function. You've been redeemed. Jesus says to work while there's still work to be done because night is coming. But if you're constantly going, woe is me, I'm going to eat some dirt. I'm just a worm. You'll think you have no position. That you have no power. Or if you use anger, and anger is your motivation for gardening, then you will destroy things that you think are weeds that might be flowers. Because the only one who has a true view of reality is God. 
No one else has a, an accurate world and life view. Only God does. You can only see in a glass dimly. I mean, if you want to you look at this, it's, it's throughout the scripture, but you know, the idea that your individual suffering is not, the direct, you know, is not directly caused by sin in particular. There's a, a general sense that we suffer because of what happened with Adam and Eve, but in terms of the particular sins creating a reality, the Bible never teaches that. For example, when you were a kid, you might have stolen some candy from a store or whatever, or taken something just either for the thrill of it or because you didn't have enough money or whatever it was, you didn't suddenly become blind because you stole. Now, you might have been thrown in jail or you might have had some temporary consequences for having stolen, but there was no sense that that particular sin suddenly made you lame or blind or whatever else. Now, some religious traditions and teaching over the years have spent a whole lot of time trying to make you fearful that behavior will result in certain kinds of cataclysmic traumas in your life. For example, there's a whole teaching about blindness and other stuff that people said that if you did this, you will become blind. And some of you are surprised that you're not blind today. I, I discern that some of you know what I'm talking about right now. You see, that that's false teaching that says a particular sin will create this particular consequence because God loves to punish. God doesn't love to punish. You see, Job takes this angry approach to God in the book of Job that we studied together. He says, vindicate me, God. I'm not guilty. Show me why this is happening to me. And he does it for over 20 chapters. And then his friends look at Job and they see this anger in Job and Job's upset. And Job says, I'm innocent. And they're like, Job, there's no way. There's no smoke without fire. There's no harvest without seed. You had to have created this. You killed your, your children. So they took the guilt approach. And in Job 42, God says, you're wrong. Job did not do what was wrong in my eyes. He did not cause this. Job is Blameless. Now, blameless doesn't mean sinless. Blameless means that there was no particular sin that created these consequences. And Job himself, as he sees God and understands the wisdom of God and understands that he's just a mortal, he says, there are things that are too wonderful for me, things I cannot understand. And then he retracts all his demands. Because you see, Job loved God for God. And there's some sense, and I, I feel like I need to say this to some of you. There's some sense in which if you're to be the man or the woman that God intends you to be, he cannot tell you why you're suffering. Because to tell you what's going to even be produced from the suffering would then become the cause by which you sustain yourself in your suffering. And it won't be because you love God for God. You will love God for the consequences that will come. You will love him for the reward of the person you will be. See, he can't, couldn't tell Job, Job, I'm making you one of the greatest men that ever lived. Because then Job would say, well, I'm going to go through this so I can be one of the greatest men who ever lived. And then Satan would go, see? 
I told you he only loves you for what you do for him. And that's important you get that. If you're to become the destiny that God has for you, there are things he has to keep secret from us. So you can do it for him, not for the reward. Well, let me just, let me reiterate this. If God were paying you back or me back in regards to all our particular sins, none of us would be left. Please understand this. Self-pity and anger will kill you. Guilt will destroy you. One of the things that you start to realize after a while is that as sorry as you feel for yourself, no one else can feel that sorry for you. And even if they do, it doesn't feel like love. It feels like condescension. Poor you. Doesn't it make you feel good? Poor you. Oh, you, 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 everything bad happens to you, doesn't it? <laughs> it's kind of a, it's sort of a comparison. I'm glad I'm not you. There's nothing in that that feels loving. So when you are feeling sorry for yourself, you now have a shield up that no one can love you through. Oh, it always happens to me. Why does it always happen to me? So it has to come to the place where you begin to say, like Jesus is teaching here, suffering in your life is not a punishment. As long as you think it is a punishment, you'll go back to anger. Who's to blame for this? Or you'll go back to guilt. I'm to blame for this. But if you see what Jesus is saying here, he says, it's so that God's work can be displayed in your life. It's so that the work of God can be displayed in your life. Even the amount of suffering that you go through is governed by God's will. In a very real sense, what you see in the book of Job is that Satan can only do what God wants to accomplish in Job's life. He can do no more than that. As a matter of fact, even in our Savior's death, only death could do so much in his life. It could only do what needed to be done to accomplish the redemption uh, from sin and death for us. And as soon as that was accomplished, the exaltation of Jesus began. This is why it is clear in Scripture that it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and at the appropriate time, he will what? He will exalt you. Guess what happens when you exalt yourself, which is what you're doing when you become self-protective, self-pitying, and angry. You're exalting yourself. And he says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he's trying to display this redemptive work in your life. Suffering, will you say this with me? Suffering is not for nothing. Look at your neighbor. Look at him. Yeah, he'll like, what? <laughs> See if they're awake. Look at him. Go, suffering <laughs> is not for nothing. <laughs> I like it when you point at each other like that. It looks really righteous. <laughs> Think about this, friends. I mean, this is, just, this is just to sort of illustrate this. An entire book of the Bible is called Lamentations. <laughs> How many of the psalms are lament psalms? A huge portion of psalms are lament psalms. Romans 8 is saying to us, a loving agenda will not waste your sorrows. Come on. 
Let me tell you a story from, from the scriptures. You know the story, but let me just remind you of it. There was a patriarch, one of the pillars of the faith, one of the promised ones of God named Jacob. He had the most screwed up family you'll ever know. He had 12 sons by you know, four different women. He didn't love any of those women. He didn't love any of those sons except for one woman who for years was barren and finally had a son. And that's the only son Jacob loved. All the other sons were his slaves. They were his servants. They were his managers. They were there to tend to his property. And he took care of them and gave them food, but he was not a real father to them. The only one he was a true father to was Joseph. And all his riches went to Joseph. And all his affection went to Joseph. Everything that we know about family is when there's a favorite in the family, there's poison in the family. And so Joseph not only was the favorite of his father, but when he was a teenager, he had a spiritual awakening and he found out he was a favorite of God. So now he's having dreams, he's having visions. His brothers get doubly angry. He's not only the favorite of the father, he's a favorite of the father. So they decide, let's kill him. God likes him, father likes him, let's kill him. Instead, one of the brothers gets a pang of conscience, sells him, they, he gets sold off into slavery. He goes, now this is a favorite of God. He goes and is a slave in a household. He's rising up in the household. The wife of his, of his, uh, his master falls for him, wants him, tries to have sex with him, says nobody will know. And he says, no, he can't do this because he can't sin against God. She then accuses him of rape. He gets thrown into prison. He's the kind of favorite of God none of us really want to be. He gets in prison. He meets two of the Pharaoh's uh, servants. And one, both of them have dreams. One's dream he's going to die, which happens. The other's he's going to be restored and he's brought back to Pharaoh. And Joseph says to him, please don't forget me. What does the guy do? He forgets him. Then Pharaoh has dreams. And this steward who was saved by Joseph... Finally goes, oh, I know a guy. Years later, I know a guy. And so they send for Joseph. And Joseph becomes second in all the land. And he, he's overseeing all the food. And who comes to get food because of the famine but his own brothers? He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. He can do anything he wants with them. He could, he could do the anger. You're to blame. He could give them guilt. You did this to me. What does he do? He looks at him and he says, what you intended for evil. He didn't let him off the hook, friends. He said, you did do this to me. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And he said this, it's so powerful. He says, I will not take the place of God in judging you. Quiet power. Light of the world. Abiding presence. Can you stay with me for a couple minutes more? Jesus talks about working because night is coming. And when he uses the word work, the word is really redemption. It's redemptive work. It's redemption. Now, redemption is an interesting term. It's you take one thing and you buy back something else. And I, I, I can never forget as a kid, we were very poor, but there were grocery stores that had green stamps. 
And so for every food that you bought, they gave you stamps. Now, the, the store where you could turn in the stamps was called the Redemption Center. Now, the stamps to me look like worthless pieces of junk. All right? But at the Redemption Center were baseball gloves. And my mom took like a wheelbarrow full of green stamps, and she got me a baseball mitt. She took something that they said had value and got from that redemption center something that was valuable to me. What Jesus is doing is he's taking us, who many of us have no value, feel like we have no worth, and he's saying, you are worth my life. I have set your value. I have set your work. And the idea here is, is kind of to, to buy back your life from the bondage in your life. Now, he continues that work well after you become a Christian because what happens is when you experience suffering, when you experience trouble, what he's doing is he's revealing in your suffering where you still have your bondage. And none of us seem to have our bondage all in the same place. For example, my wife sometimes will, will, will have something happen to her, and she'll go, why does this always happen to me? And because it doesn't affect me, and it's not my area of bondage, I go, honey, all things work together for good. <laughs> and then a totally different circumstance will come up, and I'll go, oh, why am I this happening to me? And she goes, because you deserve it. No, she goes. <laughs> Yeah, I, because oftentimes, oftentimes where I don't have bondage, I don't have compassion. And so as others are going through their suffering, if you can remember, this is the redemption center. He's redeeming them from the place because it's not why do I suffer? It's looking at why does this make me suffer? Why does this become so crucial to me? in this one area, and then to allow that it's in that place that Jesus is setting you free. What others intend for evil, God is working for good. Now, to finish this up, Jesus takes mud and puts it in this guy's eye. I don't care, even if, if the Bible says he anointed him with mud. That's a crazy anointing, isn't it? I'm going to give you guys the mud anointing today. You know, we're going to go out in the, the, the field there and mud anoint each other. Oh, think about this. He's already blind. Mud in the eye is not going to make him see. If he has any light whatsoever, mud in the eye is going to make it total darkness. In some ways, it looks like Jesus is making it worse before it gets better. Anybody ever felt that? Then he says, go and wash. And what happens? He sees. Please listen to this. Jesus asks that you would trust him and obey him in the dark so that you can be set free. Jesus asks that even when it seems like mud in the eye, he himself trusted the Father in the dark to set the human race free to give sight to the blind. Can you trust him in the dark? Can you obey him in the dark? Because the promise is the 
the day is coming when you're going to see really clearly. Will you stand with me? This is kind of complex today. Can you hear me, though? It's one, to me, it's one of the most beautiful teachings on our sufferings, bringing purpose to it, learning to lay down the default settings. We're not cynics. You cannot follow Christ and be a cynic. You can't protect yourself or you won't go where he's going. You cannot follow Christ and be a romantic. This is a fallen, not working world. And you've been given a deed over a world that's broken. Even the world itself is crying out for Jesus to return. And yet this is where we're to flourish. This is the garden that's been deeded to us. And in order to undo the weeds, it has to be spiritual. It can't just be your efforts. And the problem is you're just as broken and I'm just as broken as the world. And when he brings that suffering, when he lets Satan have a little rope, he's only giving him enough rope to kill himself. And he's only giving him enough authority to set you free. Will you say this with me? Lord, I will trust you in the dark. I will obey you in the dark. So that I can wash and see. Can you get that picture? He sent him to the pool, washed the mud out of his eyes. He had his sight. He was so changed that his neighbors didn't recognize him. He had an abiding presence, he had a light in his eyes. Quiet power. May that be so of each of us today. Would you receive that? In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Glad you were here today. We'll see you next week.